You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast, with your hosts, Chris Jennings and Dr. Mike Brazier. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. Joining me today in studio is my co-host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Mike, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. Good to see you. Also joining us today in studio is Dr. Heath Hagee, waterfowl ecologist for the National Wildlife Refuge System for the Southeast. Heath, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. Hey, Mike, you know, before we really get into the weeds here, I'm going to let you kind of provide an introduction to what we're going to talk about today and why. You know, this is our season in review episode, but but this is so in-depth, so I, I kind of want you to go ahead and really set the tone for what we're going to talk about here today. Yeah, this is, uh, I, I think I said this last year, one of, the, one of the things that I've enjoyed most about doing the podcast is it gives me a reason, more of a reason nowadays, to actually connect with people all across the country, all across the continent throughout the year to kind of get a feel, get, get a, keep a finger on the pulse of what's going on with waterfowl populations, waterfowl habitats, and obviously at the end of the hunting season. That's like the big culmination or the, the hunting season itself is sort of the culmination of everything that we look forward to in a given year as waterfowl hunters. And now at the end of it, it gives us an opportunity to reflect back, not just on the hunting season itself, but even things that preceded that and do, I guess, our best at trying to cap encapsulate everything that went on and then how it unfolded and how it may have influenced people's experiences in the field 
We did this last year around this time. Dr. Tom Mormon was our guest on that episode. That episode was well-received. That conversation and what we pulled together for that particular episode also, I guess, led to the development of a season in review report, a sort of a written document that we released, and it too was well-received and people liked it, so we're going to be doing that again, where we look at big-picture I guess, environmental um, patterns that we saw over the course of the breeding season and then over the course of the fall and winter, and then do our best based on what we heard from people all across the country uh, to describe how that influenced what happened with the birds, with the habitats, and with people's uh, experiences there. Obviously, there's exceptions across the board. Every single year, some people are going to tell us that they had their best year ever hunting. Some will tell us that they had their worst year ever that's the case again this year for sure. So that's kind of the nature of what we're going to do here is just look back, season in review, and hopefully it answers some questions, gives some people things to think about um, in the context of how the full annual cycle of waterfowl plays out. And that was a super long description for where were the ducks? That's right. <laughs> that's right. I mean, where that, were the ducks? Where were the ducks? That's, that's, the, that's the question. It's that's complicated. Right. <clears throat> it is. And that's the thing. And, and that's what I, I as well enjoy about doing these podcasts and really talking through it. You know, platforms like the magazine and even the website, you know, we are limited in some capacity to word count and discussions and, and who can we interview and who, you know, with this, we can openly talk and listeners can kind of hear, um, you know, what, both of you were seeing, you know, Heath, you from kind of a southeastern perspective, but you also hear and you work mm-hmm. and you work with people throughout the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service who are providing you information throughout the country, so Absolutely. you can provide that. Um, but Mike, you know, you're talking to people throughout the season and really trying to get a grasp of, and that's that's what it is. Like, where were the ducks? Why did they do this? Why did they do that? And um, I'll let you go ahead and start out with, you know, we have you know information that you pulled together as far as precipitation and um, things like that. But let's start out with when the season began. Um, You know, we're looking at, we were looking at this and talking about this in July and August and everyone knew, especially from a science perspective, everyone knew that we, there was a drought in the prairies, U.S. and Canada. Canada was really even worse than the U.S. Um, Let's start out with that, Mike, and and kind of, and or even Heath, you know, what were you guys looking at from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife kind of perspective? You were looking at this drought um, and then, you know, kind of taking that continental perspective of, you know, what could this potentially mean? And then we'll just kind of go from there. I'll start off, and, and Heath, you can offer your uh, your your comments, your perspective as well. And and you're right, Chris. That is where we have to start. We 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 try to remind people of that by by being able to do this podcast year round. I think we're able to just like the magazine piece together the different parts of what happens in waterfowl's annual cycle. And when we think about what it is that we see in the fall and winter of a given year, we really have to go back and look at the way conditions unfold the preceding spring and summer, that breeding season. And of course, that's the nature of the conversation around which uh, we talked all about drought last year on the prairies. Um, It was in in Prairie Canada, it was really about the second or third consecutive year of dry conditions in the States. It was incredibly dry last summer. But if you go back to, I guess it would have been the summer, spring, summer of 2020, the Dakotas were actually pretty wet. Um, But last year, spring, summer of 2021 was the first time in many years where we have had a very widespread drought. And as all of our conversations um, sort of bore out last year, people were expecting 
very low production to come out of the prairies. And when you think about the ducks that emerge from the prairies for, for which it, that region is so important, we're talking about some of the most abundant duck species, dabbling ducks, mallards, pintails, shovelers, blue-winged teal, uh, green-winged teal. I feel like I'm missing yeah. one of the gadwall. Did I say? Yeah, gadwall, definitely. So there are su- a, a suite of species that are among the most abundant population size-wise that are so heavily tied to the prairies. When it dries up, those populations are going to dip. And And although we didn't have survey data last year, we didn't have it the prior year either, I think every waterfowl biologist expected a pretty low fall flight last year. Uh, now, the one thing that I'll mention here, uh, I don't think we'll get into this in, in any detail, but it does affect the way people's perception of the hunting season, which is going to kind of unfold, is the fact that we were in a liberal uh, harvest package this past year. We've talked about that, why that is, how that came to be on previous episodes, so we won't belabor that here. But th- it is important to kind of say that I think that, I think the fact that we were in a liberal season was it provided in the minds of people a bit of a mismatch in what we were saying relative to the low productivity versus a liberal season kind of sending the message of, oh, it should be a great season. You know, but again, that's just a little a nuance in the way the harvest management is, is set right now. Um, and, and so I think that that mentally challenged some, some of us as hunters to think about and really calibrate what to expect. But yeah, it started with, with an expectation of, of low fall flight, maybe average production out of the boreal forest. And I, and I will say, based on when we think about the prairies and the boreal forest, we kind of have to compartmentalize and think about the those areas being really important for the eastern three flyways, central Mississippi and Atlantic. And of course, what happens in the Pacific is affected by some of those western breeding areas. What I observed and what I heard a lot of other people observing is consistent with low productivity out of out of those, at least out of the prairies, a lot of adult birds in the harvest. I saw that. I heard that. Uh, in some cases, birds were harder to decoy because they're going to be adult birds. Um, I could tell stories of some of our our staff, our chief scientists in the Dakotas, and and I think maybe even some of our our research partners, state partners up there, people that hunt a lot, saying they there were some days when they hunted in the Dakotas where they didn't shoot a bird. That's rare, you know. So that kind of that's one of those anecdotal observations of just what we think the fall flight was last year, probably pretty low. Heath, what perspectives do you have relative to any of that out of the prairies or anything out of other parts of the of the breeding areas? Mike, I think you nailed it. Um, one of the things that, that, us, that we as scientists sort of appreciate is the complexity in figuring out how many ducks we expect to come down here, right? Because everyone has their opinion about it, and there's a lot that happens in the in the time and the distance between the breeding areas and, you know, and us down in the southeast and, and, and across the wintering areas of the of the southern U.S. And, and, and Mexico. And so it's just super complicated. When you when you add the uncertainty of not having the survey data, not having the, the, the pond count data, it just makes our our job even harder, and yeah, we, we worry about the same things. I mean, um, I would like to think that because that I didn't kill that many ducks this year because they're a bunch of adults, so that's my excuse too. I don't know if that's in reality what really happened, but yeah, I had a tough hunting season too. Um, it's just it's super challenging 
under norm under a normal year to to sort of get it right and to predict the to predict all of the outcomes that may say well we're going to have a good year in this area of Arkansas or a good year a good year here in in North Carolina at the end of the day was just really challenging this year because we we had less data than we usually do and I think you know it, it's important like you mentioned there, there's so many variables so to many this. and so it's it's hard when I get have people ask me which most time I just forward these emails to Mike <laughs> uh, but you know it's one of those deals where people are like well you know it, it seemed like the ducks were late or it seemed you know where were the ducks over here or you know hey we just didn't see him in Utah this year and it's like if you really think about it from that you know you've got one guy sitting in a duck blind or, you know, and he's looking over one, you know, piece of water or one field and he's like, oh, the ducks just aren't here. The ducks could be 200 yards the other direction behind a tree line. And he just didn't see them. But, you know, it compiling all of that into, you know, just kind of this season review where we're trying to really we're, we're there's a lot of speculation, yep. I mm-hmm. guess. I think that's one thing for a lot of people to remember and how it all is pieced together. And like I said, it's challenging for you guys as, as waterfowl scientists to look at this, but it's also hard for the average duck owner to look at it. And, you know, maybe early drought in Kansas play had an impact on where these birds like blue wing teal as they're, you know, migrating through early. Maybe that had an impact and these, those birds shifted a little earlier or a little later or one way or the other. And so to keep that in mind, you know, as we discuss this, that, that, that while the science community is looking at this, the average duck hunter is also trying to peel the layers of the onion out here too. And, and that's why I think this is important to have this conversation. Um, and Heath, this is kind of a question for you. How do you think the that early drought, the low precipitation in Missouri, Kansas, Oklahoma, Nebraska was super dry yeah. early. Like, how did that? Not only was it dry in the prairies, but you know, through the migration areas, it was also really dry. You're exactly right. Yeah. So not only did we have drought on the on major portions of the prairies this year on our production areas, but we had a dry fall for and and really throughout much of winter, we've remained really dry uh, in many areas where, you know, huge concentrations of, you know, mid-continent mallards and many of our other species spend a great proportion of the winter. Um, So we had, you know, huge areas with very, very little, I won't say no, but almost no water um, in in many shallow wetlands when we had pushes of birds we had some we had some cold weather early mm-hmm. you know you get early migrating pintails in November where where are they gonna go you know they're not going to sit on many of our managed units you know on national wildlife refuges where they usually would because they were dry and it wasn't because we weren't doing our job or didn't care there was no water there was no water to lift out of the ditches there was no water to pull um, or even pump in some areas so you know even the managed areas um and a lot of us until mid-december or even later we really struggled to get water on our managed areas and so these these early um early migrants like pintail but the even even the mallards coming in december they didn't have a lot of real estate to choose from. It's really an interesting problem. Again, not only do you do we expect different things because of what the fall flight, the changes in the fall flight and adult birds and those kinds of things, but then abnormally dry conditions throughout much of the migration and into early wintering period. So there aren't the traditional places for those birds to stop. There's so much to unpack here, and it's kind of exciting to think about all the different things that we could get into, but we'll have to, we only have a limited amount of time, right? 
this I, the the fact that we had low precipitation early in the early in the fall it causes me to think about the conversation we had back in the fall with or maybe yeah I guess it was back in the fall maybe right at the beginning of season five with uh, with, with our our contacts in Arkansas Austin Booth director of the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission Luke Naylor and then um, and then Jake Spears our biologist over there about the green tree recovery program and plans that they're implementing over there. And one of the big worries was that they had made kind of made the decision on some of these WMAs this year, GTRs, to delay mm-hmm. flood up. I don't even think they could have flooded up earlier yeah. than than what they said they were going to if they wanted to. So that's one of those that's sort of an indication of just how dry it was in some of those uh in some of those landscapes. The the, the mantra that we I, a lot of people were operating under early on when we saw the dry conditions unfolding. It was that, well if if you have water, you're gonna you should do pretty well with birds early in the season, and I think um, I think that was probably the case. That's what I heard from from various people is that if they had water, they did well early on. Kind of speaking to the limited habitat that was out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that that was overall, especially right there. I mean, from personal experience in Arkansas, I mean, if you had water early, um, you typically had ducks. And people did pretty well, myself included. We we were we did very well in Arkansas un- until we actually got water until yeah. they, until they got water on the landscape, and then our hunting decreased and other people's picked up. But that's kind of the give and take of what it is, and that and it really happens like that throughout each flyway. We we kind of have a tendency here, and, and I'm you know to blame for this as well because we hunt in the Mississippi Flyway primarily, yeah. and so we talk about that a lot more. Um, but you know managing that migration alert program that we have on ducks.org where I have an opportunity to talk with all of these professional free, freelance riders who are living in, in different regions. And so um, just to throw an example out there of kind of the feast or famine that we all had early, um, the Pacific Flyway was was very much like that as well. I mean, we, we had podcasts about, you know, drought and severe drought. And then that, the coin flipped all over there for them, um, especially in California, Sacramento Valley and things like that. And so then I talked to the guys after that and they're like, oh, well, now the hunting's just as hard because now there's too much water. <laughs> like, oh yeah. So, you know, those, those guys are begging for water and then they get it and now they have too much water. But, um, you know, either one of you, did you guys have any conversations with anyone, you know, even early? I mean, we're still kind of in this early discussion um, from the Pacific Flyway where you heard, because I think they got some some pretty cold weather but it was a little bit later than normal to push those birds into like Washington and Idaho and, you know, Oregon. But um, did you hear any any feedback out there? I spoke with Virginia Getz a few weeks ago. We had an episode with her to kind of put a, put a bow around the California season to get some insights from her because I had not spoken with very many people out west this year, uh, just the way things fell out. I I kept track of your migration alerts and kind of gleaning some information from what they, they showed. I do recall those early significant rain events. We heard about several atmospheric rivers on the the Weather Channel, all all these fancy names for these meteorological events. Now, bomb cyclone Mm -hmm. was, I I think, maybe those are one and the same. I'm I'm not sure, but Virginia was talking about that. And and you're right, Chris, you referenced the drought also for the Western U.S. That was a big topic topic of conversation and a very important determinant of that local duck production that occurs throughout those western states, which is an important source of birds for hunters in the west. Depressed production out there last year, 
Again, I don't know how much data we actually have from any surveys, but I don't think there's any waterfowl biologist that's going to tell you across the western U.S. they had great production. It was just dry. I mean, just near record dry. There was a lot of worry going, worry, legitimate worry going into the fall and winter about how much water, how much habitat was going to be able to put on the landscape in some of those key migration areas in the Intermountain West and farther, farther west along the coast. And Virginia, as we were all kind of watching everything unfold, the opening weekend of the duck season there in uh, there in California, I think Virginia said it was on the second day. I think the first day was you know no weather event, but the second day is when they they got all of that rain, and it fundamentally changed the appearance of the landscape. Most of that, I believe, fell in the Sacramento Valley, some in the in the San Joaquin, lower in the valley. But yeah, it that our greatest worry of almost no habitat being available or greatly reduced habitat being available really didn't materialize the way we thought it would. I mean, they were still they were still constrained on habitat in some areas until they got later in the in the winter. But uh, I, you know, I guess the they did get some relief early on, and the takeaway that Virginia described was that it's, and I think this is pretty consistent really across the U.S. this year. It felt like an up and down year, like up and down in terms of conditions that we think should be good for for waterfowl hunting, for good, for significant migration events. We went through some periods almost on a monthly basis where it, it looked like it was going to be good and then it turned it was a complete 180. It got really warm or really stale. And that kind of contrast, you might remember, Chris, with last year where we talked about how it was. It felt stale pretty much the entire hunting mm-hmm. season. We just couldn't catch a break. This year was a little different in that we did have a series of ups and downs of favorable and unfavorable conditions. And, of course, the, the abundant, the multiple abundant precipitation events out west both in California as well as the Pacific Northwest. I know they had several of those atmospheric river events as well that put a lot of water on the landscape, caused some catastrophic flooding in some areas, influenced bird distribution, spread the birds out, made it a bit difficult. Virginia uh, said that her conversation with one of her hunting partners was such that, you know, it like it's it feels as though neither the birds nor the habitat nor the hunters ever really found that rhythm that normal rhythm that we expect from waterfowl uh, for waterfowl hunting in in the central valley of california one of your freelance writers in the in the pacific northwest quoted someone of saying something like it was it just felt weird mm-hmm. this year so that's the only insight that i have you know from the pacific flyway I don't know if Heath, if you've spoken with anyone out there, you don't have any, you know, any uh, work responsibilities out there. I don't think, but any any friend that you might have talked with, <laughs> <laughs> certainly, it, and and um, that's consistent with what I, what I've heard as well. You know, super dry in the in the late spring, early summer, and you know, we had huge you know huge issues getting some of our refuges out there flooded. That I know, or never got water on on some of them, unfortunately, or never significant amount of water because just it was it was so dry for so long. But then, you know, you're right, in some areas it it changed. Um, but, you know, I haven't heard any, like, this was a great season, this turned out great for me. You know, I haven't heard very many of those reports from, you know, from from California or other areas. And so I, I don't really have a whole lot to add to that. Surprisingly, overall, the, the and not just in the Pacific Flyway, 
but throughout the country, the the hunters that I've talked to and people that I know in, di- in different regions, nobody said it was a terrible season, but nobody said it was a great season. I'll forward mm-hmm. you a few emails. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah, I was going to say no. for the record, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. it's just people are like, eh, like you know, and I think that's very indicative of the habitat too. It was kind of like. Eh, you know, it's dry. They got some water. Different areas, you know. And so, I also wonder. I also wonder if all of the talk about the drought last year, if that helped to calibrate people's expectations. That's certainly the intent with which we communicate a lot of that, because, and especially as I alluded to earlier, the fact that we were going to have a liberal season, the need to kind of calibrate expectations, at least in my mind, I'm sure yours as well, Heath, was really important. You know, because. We want hunters to be satisfied. Your satisfaction is the intersection of expectations with experience, as our great friend Larry Reynolds has said mm-hmm. before. So, yeah, and and with all of this, and I think it's something to keep in mind: there are winners and losers. <laughs> you know, like like there it was dry in the prairie, so a lot of people who I know who went up there to hunt this year did not do very well. I mean, they did okay. Don Mormon and-, and Jerry Holden ended up. Fishing yeah. more than they <laughs> Yeah. And it was warm. I mean, and and that was one thing, one thing that we really haven't talked about is we got cold weather, especially in the central Mississippi flyways, but it was kind of late. I looked back and we did the podcast with um Mike Schumer. No, um Scott Stevens. Oh so yeah, yeah. we That's did right. that That's right. last year. So in 2020. We did that big, you know, the migration alert headline. This is our most popular thing. It's like, you know, Canada's finally freezing. Birds are bailing out of Canada. You know, it's like that's – and that's a big deal for our listeners, big deal for our supporters uh, because that means that's kind of the kickoff of the main migration into the U.S. for mallards and, you know, these hardy birds that finally get chased out of Canada. We did that like October 5th in 2020. In 2021, we didn't do that until November. Yep. So that that's and it, it never even dawned on me that that happened until I actually looked back at it, and so that's something to keep in mind. I mean, I went to North, I went to Lake of the Woods, Minnesota, on a magazine assignment the first week of October, and we were in flip flops and shorts walleye fishing. Like we were up there to duck hunt, and it was like this didn't work out. You know, we were grouse hunting instead. You know, it just didn't. The ducks weren't there, and so, uh, like I said, winners and losers across the board. But uh, just based on feedback from my freelancers like Jay Anglin, who came on the show several times to provide, he's our Great Lakes migration editor. He, the guys in Michigan were winners. Yeah. Yeah. From what yep. I've heard. Yep. I've and now heard granted, too. I'll probably get an email now saying, I was not, <laughs> but you know, even Jay was like, man, like Harsons Island, yeah. you know, these areas, these historical migration corridors, it was really Har- held birds. Harsons Island was not good early because yeah. I went to Harsons yeah, Island. I, I was there. We were there in, in late October, which is normally a a good time mm-hmm. for a uh, for a good migration was not the case. It's really interesting to look at some of these maps that we'll put out in this season in, re- in review report because you can dissect some of the things that you're talking about. Departures from average for precipitation, and you look at at what these are showing. And yeah, it was warm up in the up in the Great Lakes states, warm up in the prairies, and you can see how it changed. The, but there's also some kind of geographic differences in how those patterns develop, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But your comment about Michigan being a winner, I think that was kind of echoed by a a couple of folks that I spoke with within DU saying some of the people that they had talked to had one of their best weekends ever in like maybe in December. Yeah. 
which is kind of crazy. Yeah. Uh, and and I got a lot of that feedback. I don't know, Heath, if you were hearing some of the same things, but, you know, of course, I'm the armchair biologist that tries to speculate on what and why and try and explain something. And I have, you know, there's no actual data to back any of it up, but, uh, but I can do that kind of thing. Right, Mike? Um, <laughs> sure. It's, it's, it's almost like when it was so dry in the prairies, those guys in the Great Lakes states picked up ducks, you know, even, you know, Northwest Ohio, you know, and those Lake Erie marshes, like, they had fantastic seasons from the guys that I talked to. And it's like almost like it was so dry that maybe, you know, some of those birds kind of trickled over to where there was water once the migration really started kicking off. Were you hearing that from some of your fish and wildlife counterparts, you know, up in the Great Lakes areas? Not specifically, but it it, it makes sense. And you have, you think about um, the way, you know, molt migrations happen too. And, and that does make sense that, you know, some of the birds that might not have found a good breeding area, um, or some of the males might have moved to these larger water water bodies, you know. Now, I don't know about wholesale movements over to the Great Lakes region from the Western Prairies or something like that, but certainly within a region or locally, absolutely. The You know, these large water bodies in, in early fall should have held really large concentrations of birds over across most of the mid-continent because that's where the water was. It was, it was a, it was a pretty scarce resource. Yeah. There were places in northeastern South Dakota and I think southeastern North Dakota that did pick up a fair bit of rain in, Mm -hmm. I don't know when it was, if it was October, I don't remember what month it was, but they picked up a fair bit of rain actually to the point that that portion of those two states is now no longer in drought. So there's a little bright spot up there, but those areas, people that hunted in those areas were beneficiaries of, of that rain in the context of the lack of water mm-hmm. throughout the rest of that landscape. So, yeah, it's there's a lot of different scales at which all of these things play out, which determine whether and in, whether whether people see birds and whether they're successful hunting. Chris, I don't know, you know, I guess maybe this is a good time to talk about one of the first indications as we, as I mentioned, some of that early water and kind of what was happening as we began to get into the fall hunting season, the teal, teal migration mm-hmm. and teal season. That was sort of the first signal that we were looking for in terms of uh, as an index of what happened with production we spoke with scott stevens and it was hard to get a feel from from him up there with regard to the you know ratio of adults to juveniles uh, so we didn't have a, a a great yeah i guess a great feel of what was going on other than what we expected to happen but it felt like as we got into that teal migration, y'all tell me if y'all heard anything similar. It felt like it was early, seemed like it was early, and seemed like it was rather compressed. It was like it's, it was early, and then it was over in like three weeks. Now, that's probably an exaggeration, but I do I seem to recall Kevin Cry saying they had one of their best teal seasons ever, Yeah, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if what you heard or what anyone has said regarding the age composition of, of teal or even the sex composition of the teal harvest. That's one thing we talk about often yeah. is you can look early on at the, the composition of, you know, drakes versus hens as an indication of where we are in that, in that migration. Do you recall some of those conversations with Kevin, what he might've been saying? Yeah. You know, that's interesting. And we touched on that on the last podcast that we did with Kevin regarding the midwinter survey early. And I think I had him on like the first week of September, um, but early Texas habitat was fantastic. And I think that 
really helped that teal migrate. Like they were, there was a lot of kind of rumblings about adult birds, lots of adult birds, you know, and typically as that teal migration progresses from the hunter's perspective, um, you know, you get those first few shots, they're holding birds. And then, you know, you get that full first full moon in September and you pick up more birds and, you know, it kind of, well, I, I think they got a ton of ducks really early and they held onto them for a long period of time. And they didn't get that. Like you mentioned, it was one compressed migration. It wasn't that pulsing, you know, here comes yeah. the adult males, here comes and a compressed migration you know? would be consistent with low productivity because mm-hmm. the, the females would have finished up there that they, they would have either been unsuccessful mm-hmm. or they would have been successful early yeah. and then that's it. And so then they would have got on with their wing molt and then been able to migrate south along with the, the males. That's kind of, in theory, hypothetically, the way it would yeah would have unfolded. Is that kind of the same thing that you guys throughout the southeast kind of see in Heath? That, that's consistent with what I've heard. I know some folks in the Missouri Boot Hill did very well. Some folks in Illinois did very well during teal season. But it was a super compressed window. It was five days. And if you if you were there and your habitat was right, even during the dry period, then then you could do really well. But then it was over. Yeah. Um, so that's 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 very consistent with what I've heard from the Mississippi Flyway. Yeah, I know some guys in Arkansas that that actually pumped some fields. Um, and really they were kind of expecting to hunt that like second weekend, which was normal. And they had already planned to invite their buddies over or whatever. And, uh, and they walked out one morning and they, they were holding like 8,000 blue wings. They're like, Oh my gosh, we got to call everyone to show up early. <laughs> so, you know, that, that's kind of just what, what I heard. Uh, I think some of the guys down in Louisiana did very well. Um, those that were, that were not directly impacted by that, the hurricane. Um, there's a lot of areas down there that were impacted greatly habitat wise, and they did not do well, obviously. Um, but the, those who did still have the habitat, they had, they had pretty good blue wing seasons. So, uh, that, that, I mean, that was a good starter for, for me anyway, to get positive news right out of the gates. Um, just because I think we went into the season, not us necessarily, but there were a lot of people who, you know, the sky is falling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your comment there about Louisiana is consistent with what Jason Olzak with Louisiana Department mm-hmm. of Wildlife and Fisheries told me. We tried to get him on a podcast a few weeks ago, but we failed about three times with our <laughs> technological connectivity because we were working remote and, you know, it just didn't work out. But I did talk with Jason and he gave me an update on recovery of the marshes from the hurricanes. I guess it would have been in 2020 when southwest Louisiana was affected by the hurricanes those marshes were in really good condition early on. Yeah. I think things turned dry as the season progressed. And Heath, you'll be able to provide some insights on some of this here, but uh, as we get into another part of this discussion, but yeah, he said they had good teal season. Teal stuck around pretty much throughout the season. Then some of the precipitation patterns kind of unfolded and and by precipitation patterns, I mean dry. Mm-hmm. It turned out to be dry in Southwest Louisiana. Now, Southeastern Louisiana was, of course, affected by hurricanes this past year. Mm-hmm. And those marshes took a hit. There were birds still there. But next year is the time when we were, or actually, I guess now this year, we would really hope those marshes recover. Hurricanes, in some sense, serve as a significant environmental disturbance, setback, succession. They kill a lot of the invasive aquatics. Mm-hmm. They can, in the year two or three after a hurricane comes through, can lead to some really good habitat conditions. So um, so anyway, it's good to hear that our Louisiana uh, comrades had some some good hunting early on. It got tough later on as yeah. things warmed up and dried out. But yeah. But I think Kevin Cry also spoke to that really fantastic teal season 
that they had in Texas, those variables of that hurricane and those habitat impacts in Louisiana very easily, you know, I'm not saying that's why, but very easily could impact those birds can shift. And that's one thing that we'll probably get into here in, in something that we talk about a lot on this show is these distributions, these bird distributions. And you can probably speak to this Heath a lot better than I can, as far as even the national wildlife refuges in the Southeast, these birds are not just going to one refuge and sitting throughout <laughs> the season, which a lot of, I think, some, I don't know. There's some there's some lazy birds out there. Well, but um, new data all the time is yeah, challenging but, the way we think about some of this. Yeah, but you know these birds are shifting. That's something for our audience to keep in mind. That a simple rainstorm in at Wheeler National Wildlife Refuge in outside of Huntsville, Alabama, can impact. You know these birds in Arkansas. They'll shift pretty quick. You know, not necessarily Wheeler. That's maybe that's a bad example. But you know, that's something to keep in mind. And and do you do you try to explain it that way to people as well? It, you know, we started this off by saying it's super complicated. <laughs> it's and super I complicated. hate some to people keep are going to get that, tired of that explanation oh, at some are. point. But it's the truth. Oh, it it, <laughs> it it is because you know you can't just say. Ducks do this. Ducks do shift. Some species do, and some cohorts of some species do. And they do at some latitudes, and they may not at some latitudes. At, that's exactly that's exactly yeah. right. So there is no question that some big portion of the mallard pop, mid-continent population gets pushed, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. right, by cold weather and by snow accumulation and a million factors. But there's another portion they go where they're going to go, and some of them do it fairly early, shockingly early, late October, mm-hmm. early November, mid-November. They're sort of where they're going to go until some major change moves them. I mean, you remember that in the Mid-South here in the Mississippi Flyway, we had huge snowstorm, ice storm early February last year. I don't mm-hmm. know if that if y'all talked about that on your review last year or not. I don't know. I think we are, had already produced that okay. review by then. Yeah. Super interesting, though, because we, I say we, not me, but I'm associated with some projects, right, where several universities are tagging mallards and other other dabbling ducks, and we can watch what they do after, after cold weather events. What was super interesting is we had some record cold temperatures for the Mid-South. Yeah. We had snow in Memphis for more than a week. Bunch of us snowboarded. That's ridiculous. Yeah. We so had like, some die-offs of birds. We in did. Some Mas- that's, yeah. That's exact- massive ones, really. Exactly. I mean, not massive, but... Yeah, but what we had die-offs from the yeah. cold weather. That's not something we expect mm-hmm. these days at, at this latitude. But you know what? Most of those transmitted birds set there. They didn't move. Really? They, you know, they, they sat on the ice. They field-fed. They... They just sort of hung out, or they moved a little bit. So they, you know, maybe shifted from northeast Arkansas to central Arkansas. A few went to southern Mississippi, went to central Louisiana, but very few actually made these huge push movements. Um, That just demonstrates their ability to, to some of these birds to just sit and sort of be fairly robust to some of these cold weather events and really just go to one area and I'm they don't sit on a sanctuary all winter or you know even every day but they may use a three four five six mile area you know 90 percent of the time for a, a, a big portion of winter mm-hmm. until something changes but then there are others like pintail you know 
they don't do that, right? Some of them go to the coast and then they they come back in January, late December. Super interesting migration patterns there. They'll shift around the landscape. Teal, you know, who knows what they do? Certainly large movements within winter mm-hmm. from what, what data we have, banding data we have. Um, and so it depends on the species and it depends on the cohort. You know, there's not one mid-continent mallard. There's a bunch yep. of... A yeah. bunch of individuals, and they're really they're really hard to predict. And to add on to your comment about there being a million factors that control these things or influence these things that we're observing, another very important aspect of what you described there in terms of where these birds are moving, how far they're moving, and whether they move could be the time of the year, the time of the fall and winter when that significant cold weather occurs. I know there's sort of a narrative out there right now we hear about and I've seen about and people have asked me about and I (laughs) kind of shrug and say, well, that makes sense, but I I don't have the data to substantiate it, is that if we would have looked at that same group of birds that you talked about that was transmitted and if that record cold that we saw in February, February would have occur, would have occurred in November. Mm. What would the distribution of those yeah. birds, mm-hmm. the response of those birds have been to that outbreak of cold at that time? We would hypothesize that it would be, it would likely be different, right? But we don't know that yet. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe we'll get the data and the, the co-occurrence of that record cold in November, December at some point in time to really uh, measure that. We'll have, we will have some information on that from the, from all these studies going on and not, not just here, there's studies going on in the Pacific flyway mm-hmm. and, and huge studies going on in, in, in Texas and in, in the central flyway. And so, and, and a huge one now in the Atlantic flyway mm-hmm. too. So we're going to have great information that's going to help us, that's going to help us, you know, get at these factors. And, you know, to your point earlier, we did have, it seemed like, some increased variability in the in the environmental conditions this winter, right? We had some mm-hmm. changes in how much water was on the landscape in the in the migration areas and southern areas. It snowed several times across <laughs> southern portions of the central Mississippi yeah. flyway. Yeah. You know, not just in February. We got it in December. Yep. We got it again in January and then again in January. Mm-hmm. So there was some increased variability. And so those researchers will be able to look back and see, you know, to your point, to your question, did that does that does that do they respond differently in December than late January to some of those environmental perturbations yeah no that that's all interesting and, it, and it, it'll be fascinating to be able to take that information and then also tie that into kind of the the word on the street mm-hmm. that I that I live by you guys live by the data I live by the word on the street <laughs> out here our um, goal is to have those married <laughs> yeah uh, yeah yeah but you, you know can just help us Chris like what what you what what I'm hearing you know these guys who are hunting real foot or mm-hmm. you know maybe hunting northwestern Indiana and like they're all speculating this, and see, you know, oh, you know, we get we're we're froze up. The rice fields in Arkansas froze several times mm-hmm. this year, um, and at the same time, I'm talking to my buddies who are hunting like the Wabash River in Indiana, and they're like, oh, we're smacking him. Our hunting's the best it's been. And I'm like, and then the average person is trying to put this all together, like, so they're shooting them in Indiana, mm-hmm. but my rice field's frozen in Arkansas. And all the birds that we had are gone. They're not going back north, you wouldn't think. But are they going, you know, where are they at? Now? So it's like that whole speculation that you'll be able to, you know, now with the technology, be able to tie some of that data in and say, this is what these ducks did. Not to say there's what they're going to do next time because, again, 
super complicated, but it's all fascinating to talk about. I, f- I feel like your friends on the Wabash River are going to cringe when they when they hear that, right? Because that's that's what I heard too. That they they did very well this year in that in <laughs> yeah. that area. Yeah, they're going to be mad. <laughs> but really, I, I I take it back. Early on, they yeah. struggled. All of but, them did. Yeah. And but as the season progressed, I mean, I've talked about that in my history there in that area. Um, you know, as the season progresses up there, historically, we always kind of la- joked around the fact that, you know, we didn't get ducks there in any significant number until Lake Michigan and the marshes of Lake Michigan got a ton of ice. And and that and and that was typically like December 15th, you know, when I was growing up. Now, you know, th- they got that, you know, first week of January is really when they start picking up. And that's the southern portion of um, Indiana there where they, they did. They had fantastic hunting. Um, there at the end. So, so maybe we can talk here about the the temperature swings that we that we saw because there's at mm-hmm. least a couple of months that are really significant with regard to I think pe- whether people enjoyed or did not enjoy it. And I mentioned that this kind of felt like a roller coaster year. And you look at these have five months here, September through January, and it really was a roller coaster. Yeah. You look at September and the temperatures were average to a little bit below average pretty much across the U.S. You get into October, it warmed up. It was above average. That speaks to your experience up there at Lake of the Woods, mm-hmm. I think you said, where you were in shorts in October. In November, now the western U.S. was still warm above average in, yeah. in November, but the eastern U.S. was below average, and I remember that. I mean, it was like, okay, we're getting kind of excited. Mm-hmm. November was when we spoke with Mike Schumer, mm-hmm. and we were kind of doing some, maybe it was early November, late, I guess it may have been late October when we spoke with him because he was saying, you know, the the data are suggesting or the forecasts are look, looking like we'll have some significant cold outbreaks in November. Those materialized in the eastern U.S., pushed temperatures on average to sort of below average levels, but they stayed warm in the West. But then December happened. Oh, December was miserable. December was awful. December might have <laughs> been the month whenever um the the western western us maybe picked up some uh maybe had some of that atmospheric river stuff mm-hmm. maybe a couple of bouts of that but in the eastern us it was just ridiculously warm it was one of those you know around christmas i was in short sleeves and and i may have even been wearing shorts i didn't hunt very much at all in december cuz i just didn't, didn't want to be out there but if you look at temperatures on the prairies they were below average or right at average, starting to dip down there, and and then of course January happened, and that's when uh, when the bottom fell out of the of the temperature gauge in a lot of places. We saw some prolonged cold spells, which was really exciting from a duck hunter perspective. Mm-hmm. I think whenever people, and this has kind of been my experience from talking to people, seeing some emails, and trying to explain what happened, providing some additional context to that. Because you think when we went into January with those multiple cold fronts, and fortunately, I will say that the projections for a, a warm, an extended warm winter that we heard from um, from Dr. Mike Schumer and some of the things that, not that he was necessarily forecasting, but some of the people that he follows were forecasting, Back in October, it was looking like, man, it's going to warm up in December and it's going to stay warm through the rest of winter. Fortunately, those people that those people were were not right with their forecast <laughs> or what they were seeing were, were incorrect because it did get cold in January, stayed cold, 
that was exciting. But it took a while Mm -hmm. for those cold temperatures to influence birds at some of those northern latitudes. I think that was there was some frustration experienced by that Um, because it was so warm in December. It took several weeks of sustained cold temperatures. And fortunately, we got that to start freezing some of these deeper water bodies up north and start putting ice on some of the deeper water bodies down here even. I mean, I remember it was probably, we had temperatures in the 20s, maybe in the low 20s, and there wasn't a a stitch of ice on some of the wetlands that I was hunting in early January just because it was taking so long to cool that water from December back down. Same thing with the Great Lakes. You look at some of the graphs in this report when it comes out, the ice coverage on some of those lakes it was they were running way below average through December. Then a few weeks into January, with that extended cold, ice coverage really began to spike. So yeah. there's a delay, there's a time lag there, and that affects what the birds do and what the habitat does. Yeah, and even you know I kind of keep an eye on snow cover maps. Yeah, that they were you know there was no snow. Yeah, like South Dakota didn't. I, you know I talk bring John Pullman on the show quite a bit, and uh, he does a great job of providing kind of localized information there in South Dakota and, and they just didn't have any snow. I mean, they were pretty warm, you know, through December as well. And then it kind of definitely has gotten colder now, but it was, it was late, you know, that, that temperature dropout just didn't come until late. And, and I, again, there were some winners in that, you yeah. know, and I think, you know, some of those guys, even in maybe Wisconsin, Michigan, you know, they really benefited from that warmer weather. Um, maybe some ducks held up there, some geese, you know, and gave them some additional opportunities. My experience hunting in Mississippi. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Mississippi. I, I hunted more this year than I have in a long time. I didn't kill a ton of birds. I killed a lot of time, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it was productive. 
because I got to relearn some of the areas that I grew up hunting, uh, I had a, I was able to hunt more this year than, than I had in a long time. And, and I killed a fair number of birds just because I was, I was out there. I didn't see a lot of birds though, even once we got into January, but now I could tell when new birds had arrived in response to some of that colder, colder weather. There was no doubt that I was seeing some, some newer birds that had arrived, but I kind of say that just to continue, continually layer on this conversation about what people were seeing. It's fundamentally influenced. Well, I shouldn't say fundamentally. There are several fundamental influences. One of the most important ones is just what does the fall flight look like? You know, so when, when I was out there and had been out there in like midway through January, multiple weeks of cold temperature, I'm like, man, I wish I ought to be seeing more birds. But then I kind of have to remind myself, well, I don't think there were that many birds in the fall flight to begin with. That's kind of, I had to con- constantly remind myself of that. And the ones that I saw were adults. Now, they were good looking adult birds that mm-hmm. I was, that I was harvesting. But um, yeah, it was, it, I, at least the story that I was piecing together in my mind made sense given what I knew about drought on the prairies and then the way the environmental conditions of the fall and winter were unfolding. Heath, did you? get out hunt much this year i did um unsuccessfully uh, a whole lot right but uh but but such is life um but i will say right at the end of season you know similar to last year a little bit later than last year but end of the season it really picked up like it did for a lot yeah. of, a lot of people in in the in the mississippi fly in the southern mississippi flyway but to go back to what you just said there mike i i, I thought about this the last day of season i'm cleaning some ducks lucky enough to harvest and i thought you know, I, I certainly didn't kill a lot of ducks this season, but I don't think I killed any skinny ducks this season. Great body condition on all of these birds across the the many species. I'm not, you know, I'm not a, just a, a, a mallard hunter. You know, I'll go, I'll go lay in the rice fields and, and bean fields and, and shoot some shoveler and, and other things. And But every everything was in really good con- condition. Mostly adult birds only had a few obviously juvenile birds even come through a blind that I was in this year. That I, I, I found that abnormal. It was noticeable, you know. And so, you know, that's just a, a small anecdotal snippet, but it does make sense with all of the things that we've talked about. Lots of adult birds in the population, maybe fewer birds too in the fall flight with lower production. And so that there's plenty of resources potentially for those. I have a, a- tangential question for you here. You, you as well. I probably killed 15 mallards or something like that, uh, throughout the season, at least two, if not three had sarcocystis. And I was Mm. with Scott Manley in Arkansas for a hunt. I think we harvested, I don't know, eight mallards or something like that. Two of them had sarcocystis. Mm. And I got to thinking like, I, I don't know enough about that that parasite you know to or that that yeah that what is it is it a parasite mm-hmm. um to 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 really speak intelligently about this but it seems is it more is it possible that it's more prevalent in adult birds do we know anything about well, that? That's a good question. It is a good question, and I I, I don't know. I, I can't put on my disease hat, <laughs> right? A disease ecologist hat on there right now. But that's an interesting question, and you wonder too about transmissibility and smaller wetlands and more overlap yeah. between the species. That's yeah. that's pretty interesting. I may have to go back and think about that. Yeah, I haven't had much time to look into that, uh, but for next year, yeah, and, and that's interesting year. that you had such a high number in the percentage of birds that you 
killed. And in Mallard. Maybe, and that, in Mallard, maybe so. that explains why I was able to harvest them. Maybe yeah, they're they, they, they they already sick. impaired. Yeah, they, <laughs> uh, you're preying on the weak, Mike. Um, no, and, and what's interesting to that is is at my place where we hunt in Arkansas, you know, we, we typically shoot a decent number of birds. And, and we all pretty regularly have, you know, a, you know, a couple anyway, here and there. I didn't see one this year. I didn't see one. And usually that was my experience too. I, I don't I don't know that I saw one. Usually I took with care ours, of, I took care of them for <laughs> <Yeah>. you. <laughs> usually with ours they're in shovelers. Yeah. Um and and I, I have seen them in mallards over there as well, but but usually, you know, Maybe it's because you're just not shooting. Yeah, don't judge. Don't yeah. judge. <laughs> Are you don't, a don't judge the quality of the birds that I'm harvesting. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. So no. No, that 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 is that's a very interesting, uh, you know, observation that. Um, yeah, and, I, that and, I, and I was disappointed. You're so disappointed, you know. Whenever you 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 clean the bird, and I was plucking most of these birds, but and there may be some, there may be additional ones in the freezer that I haven't really figured yeah. out yet. Have mm-hmm. sarcocystis, but these I, there was one that I had fully plucked it. And I saw something right there. Some of the meat was was visible right there at the bottom of the keel, and I pulled it back and like son of a gun, you know. You can still eat it. You I just know cook you it can. Out. I know you can. I know you can. <laughs> I actually saved some of those, and I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna see what happens. So you and I talked about yeah. this. I'm gonna see what happens if I were to prepare it in some type of roast or sort of barbecue, something like that. Because a lot of the fish, bass, redfish, trout that we catch, if you look close, they have yeah. various cysts or some yeah. kind of worms in them. And ultimately, they just kind of get cooked out. Yeah. No, it's it's fairly common. But yeah. So topic for a podcast next year. Absolutely. Sarcocystis. No, that's a good one. Well, you know, one thing I wanted, which I found interesting throughout the season, and this is also fairly localized, but um, Heath, I think this will be a good question for you, that Late December, I think it was early January, was when uh, this region, kind of the Mississippi-Louisville Valley, really got dumped on with water. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Arkansas was drastic drought. You know, we had Luke Naylor talking about it. It was bad. You guys were exactly the same. Yep. Um, when that happens, you know, from from your perspective, you know, what are the ducks doing as soon as that water hits? You know, from my kind of what I'm seeing is – these birds are just distributing across the landscape. You know, we had great hunting up until that rain. Um, and then they were just gone, you know, everywhere. The rest of us have a chance, basically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah hey, that's right. But, hey, I'll, I'll go chase them over there, too. <laughs> you're, you're exactly right. So, and, and a couple of things happen. So, sometimes we get a lot of water, but we don't get huge temperature changes. We got a lot of water and got huge temperature changes up north and, and mid-latitude as well. I mean, you know, so we may talk about this in a minute, but, you know, I did aerial surveys from southern Illinois to the Florida Panhandle and over to east Texas, right, All and, and everything mm-hmm. in between. And I looked at a lot of ice this year. I mean, even we were dealing in <clears throat> mid-January, we were dealing with, you know, icing on our aircraft, on the Louisiana Gulf Coast. I don't know how common that is, yeah. but I, I can't imagine that's something we worry about a ton down there, Mike, is no. it? Uh, no, right? Not that I know. Well, not that I know of, but I have very limited experience doing aerial surveys. I've uh-huh. said on the podcast before, my stomach can't handle it, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, um, and, and, so, and so lots of cold weather layered in with we're getting a lot of rain locally. We got a lot of rain farther mm-hmm. upstream in the watershed. And so 
Cash River comes up, then the yep. White River comes up, you know, the Ohio's up, the Mississippi's up. And so, you know, we didn't have these massive floods this year, but that first, that, that right around the 1st of January into about the, the 10th, 15th of January, that's when all those rivers got yeah. out of their banks. And so huge amount of habitat, not to mention all of the rice fields, all of the impoundments that begin to catch rainwater yep. too, right? So raining locally as well. Huge change overnight. I know I, I looked at uh, Luke uh, Luke Naylor's Arkansas report, some great graphics, right, from the Sentinel satellite data in yep. there showing and it's super obvious. You can see that just in a matter of a couple of weeks, landscape looks completely different. Yeah. Tons of habitat out there. Um, and again, at the same time, we've got some of those those temperature changes moving birds around, pushing birds mm-hmm. around from the, from the north and around here in the south too. Again, we talk about pintail, and yeah. you know, they're waiting on that water in the Arkansas Delta. You get some of that quote unquote reverse migration, but they essentially yeah. some of them move back north, and and plenty of spots for them. Then, yeah, and I think one really you bring up pintails um, in this region too is there's a field on I forty as soon as you come out of Memphis. Shh. Every, I don't know. Everybody knows about people it. People talk about it. They're like, oh, stop talking about that field. Like, there's 100,000 people that drive past that field every day. Everyone sees these pintails. I mean, there's literally like 40 thousands. yards off the road. I mean, I don't, I don't even there. know how to describe the number. I mean, I'd hate to put an actual number, but thousands, potentially. It's tens of thousands. Tens of, yeah. yeah absolutely. I, I, didn't, I didn't want to jump the gun there because yeah, no, there's, there's a million. When, when there's water out there, that's a great barometer for everyone coming from Memphis over into Arkansas yeah. to hunt, right? What, but what, what kind of field is it? Is it? It, rice and bean typically rotation. Yeah. Unhunted, yep. they, they don't hunt it? it. No one hunts it. Okay. As no. far as I know. I know some people aren't trying to hunt it. But um <laughs> but that would ruin the whole thing because yeah. but it's really cool because those birds come and go a lot. And it and it's not even, you know, they you kick a big north wind up and those birds will disappear. Mm-hmm. And guys are like, oh those those things are gone, they moved on. Like they're not they don't really we don't really know where they're exactly going you may have a better idea of this um but and then they'll come back and you can drive by there and you can see those pintails have that rust color on their chest <laughs> those birds were on the gulf coast and it's like and i think that's it's a good it's a good opportunity for me to explain to people that that regional distribution and how easily these birds they could go jump the river and go into tunica I mean, that's they can seat mm-hmm. exactly where they're at, or they could hop and go to the coast, and that's a that's a not even a day flight. I mean, they're that's just they they may be going down there to feed and then come back to this field because nobody's hunting. And it's safe, and it's like it's such a cool barometer for the kind of the pintail in the alluvial valley right there. And I, I just I'd hate to see if somebody actually hunted it because then you you'd have, they'd probably just move to another field that no one's hunting. They'd get but, a few good hunts, but yeah, then it's no longer yeah. serve as their their safe space. Yeah, but it's cool that that you 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 notice that as well. Yeah. So so me along with the eight other million people right who drive <laughs> exactly who, yeah. who drive uh, over to Arkansas to to hunt uh, several times a week. Um, but did you notice this year? Very little water, and not just in that field, yeah. but there are several of those yep. sort of barometer, if mm-hmm. you will, fields around. Yeah, very very little water this year. Seemingly, my uh, I, I, my anecdotal observation is a lot fewer pintail, yep. especially east of Crowley's Ridge this year. Yeah, you know? uh, just that we didn't. I mean, we, and we got some later when yeah. we got some water, but my observation was not as many pintail and. And I can tell you that I saw them in other places during the aerial survey this year. So. Yeah, and the interesting thing on the pintails there, and this is, I, I hate to always keep on focusing on this Mississippi, you know, flyway, mm-hmm. but it's what we're we're in and we talk about a lot. But like Jay Anglin up in Indiana, 
he they're talking about unprecedented numbers of pintails in central Indiana mm. in January. Mm. I mean, he, he's te- he's calling me he's like these guys are decoying thousand at a time, and then they're shooting their pintail, and then they're just watching them. And yeah. it's like these guys have never had this opportunity with pintails. They've and, never experienced that frustration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in like central and southern <laughs> Indiana. And I even spoke with Adam Phelps about this. And he's like, yeah, like I'm hearing reports of massive numbers of pintails. Well, that's interesting too because the hop, the hop from, you know, here to the coast is probably the same as from here to, you know, central Indiana. It's like that's almost the same. So like, the, and, you know, when, when those birds disappear, you can hear – like, oh, man, like somebody down in Mississippi had a great hunt on pintails. And, and there's like, oh. probably other examples of oh, that type absolutely. of situation all across absolutely. Mississippi. I think I remember maybe in uh, Houston Haven's report for Mississippi, they reported a unusually large number of pintails in the North Delta. I think I'm remembering that correct. I know Mallory Murphy here who lives there in, in the Mississippi Delta uh, was just kind of sharing observations of we have a lot of pintails. There was a certain mm-hmm. week where she noted a lot of pintails in their particular area. Yeah. Southern Arkansas had a lot of pintails. Now, I, I, it was something I noticed during mm-hmm. my my surveys this year, and anecdotally, hearing reports from Southern Arkansas, where I, I don't I don't consider that to be just a huge area where lots where lots sit. Maybe it is, and I just gave yeah. away a secret, right? But but <laughs> they give away had secrets. Lot. That's right. That's yeah. all we're doing. If you give away all of them, then you know everybody loses <laughs> and everybody That's wins. Right. It all balances out. Would at some point, we've we've referenced it a couple of times. The aerial surveys that mm-hmm. you flew mm-hmm. would now be yeah. I think a good time I was to just going to we'll say that. To, yeah. I want to talk about the Atlantic Flyway a little bit to the extent that we understand it. And you actually flew some surveys over there in that part of the part of the world, so maybe that'll give a transition there as well. But one of the reasons why, well, there's several reasons why you were a, a natural, a great addition to this season in review episode. You're local. You're a, you're a PhD level waterfowl ecologist that covers the entire southeastern U.S. You're a good friend, and you've been on the podcast before. So you're racking up all these reasons why you're going to continue to come back. He's telling people about the pintail field. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. I'm blaming it on him. But also, you flew most of the month of January all across the southeastern U.S. Uh, doing waterfowl surveys on national wildlife refuges, right? Tell that, us about that. That's correct. Um, more than more than I had anticipated when I when I set that up. So uh, just to just to step back a little bit. So many many states, especially in the Mississippi Flyway, Southern um, Central Flyway, and, and perhaps out west as well. I'm less familiar with that. You know, they do a a midwinter waterfowl survey. Aerial surveys are by far the most efficient and effective way to estimate numbers uh, of, of birds in an area such as the Arkansas Delta or the or the Arkansas River Valley or, or or the Delta of Mississippi or Louisiana Gulf Coast, so on and so forth. So many state agencies coordinate and run their own midwinter survey at the state level or major portions of the state that are sort of considered waterfowl habitat, right? So Houston Havens is in charge and Mississippi in their in their Delta region of, you know, they do line transect surveys and and get an estimate of total number of birds there simultaneously at the same time during that first week of January. Luke Naylor's coordinating that with a bunch of his biologists and managers in Arkansas and Jason Olzak is doing that in Louisiana and so on and so forth. Um, And so they're covering these large areas and they're, you know, they they talk, but they're kind of independent surveys. So at the same time, we on refuges, we're not in it's not that we're not interested in what's going on in the state, but they're already covering that. But we have objectives for 
the number of birds that we think we need to provide resources for at those local refuge levels. And so we need to fly a survey of just our refuges. And we actually use a similar design. It's a probability-based transit sampling design, but it's at a much smaller scale. And so there's some different tweaks that we do because we're not surveying, you know, 400 square miles or a thousand square miles. We're surveying, you know, 10,000 acres, 2,000 acres, 20,000 acres, something like that, with a few exceptions like Cache River Refuge and and uh, and White River and Cameron Prairie and Sabine on the Gulf Coast, some of those. So what we what we do is we uh, we develop a, a survey design or I develop a survey design, and then we have we have biologists from the Fish and Wildlife Service who are trained in aerial survey um, estimation and design, and they go and they they fly this design. We have some areas that we do what what are sort of considered a census-style survey. So if you have a group of impoundments, we're going to go do a total estimate of birds on that impoundment. And then we have, we have large reservoirs or tracts of bottomland, hardwood trees, something like that. We're going to do a line transect sampling. So all fancy ways saying we've got to do some math. We've got to, we've got to, Heath has got to uh, transcribe all the data, throw it into a model, do some corrections, and boom, we come up with an estimate of the number of birds that are using Real Foot National Wildlife Refuge, Sabine National Wildlife Refuge, so on and so forth. At a point in time. At, at a Again, it's a single point in time. And yeah. we're, we are doing it at the same time as the states are doing this larger scale survey. So, you know, so for instance, um, you know, if we were to talk to Luke or to Houston, they may say, well, our area of this, this area of the state, the strata, you know, may have 200,000 ducks. And I can say, that's awesome. We we also did a you know an estimate on Bald Knob National Wildlife Refuge, and it had fifty thousand ducks. And those are, I'm just making up those numbers, yeah. right? And um, that, that was going to be a question that I asked: Do those transects interlap? Like, are you guys they do. like so? So Luke's survey would go over the Cache River as well, and then you guys are coming in and kind of do it, and then you guys compare those numbers, or is that we we can absolutely okay. so yeah, so it's cool. it's good to coordinate, yeah, right? You don't absolutely. want to fly at the same place on the same yeah, day at the same right, time, right? Yeah. That's not a good idea. You guys don't pass each other. That's right. We don't we don't want to we don't want to wave yeah. you know we don't want to wave each so other. Say don't worry about that. I've already counted it. You don't do <laughs> yeah. That. yeah. So there's a lot of coordination, right? Yeah. So we flew seven or eight different states, I believe, this winter. We had four aircraft were involved, four pilots, about uh, four different observers that were going with each one each one of those, um, and so it's a lot of coordination. Plus, we've got you know our uh, uh, Luke for Arkansas has a bunch of different people flying, um, and so different mm-hmm. states have different numbers of aircraft. So yes, we're coordinating. Um, you know, so they are flying over for the most part our national wildlife refuges, although it's just one portion of their huge transect that's going yeah. over. You know, many miles. Some of their transects may be. 20 miles, 100 miles, maybe, you know, they're large transects where we are, you know, some of ours may be one mile or half yeah. mile or something like that because the, you know, we're just trying to get an estimate on our little piece of the pie, yeah. right? Now, um, do you guys do Missouri? Because I know Missouri does the public do. areas. Did, did you guys do? We did not fly any of uh, okay. any, any Missouri this year. We did. So that's, that's, uh, they kind of handle that, right? They, so the, the state handles yeah. that and, and they did, they did fly some of their areas. Um, we, we did fly into Illinois a little bit, yeah. um, but, uh, for some of that coverage and coordinated with, uh, with, with the DNR in Illinois. Um, but no, we didn't fly any of the Missouri refugees. I mainly, so I work for region for legacy region four, the Southeast region, but we'll assist, yeah. we'll assist with adjacent you things. You dabble in da- Illinois. Dabble in, uh, <laughs> dabble yeah, in the in other Illinois. regions. As needed. Yeah. <laughs> As needed and requested. And requested. <laughs> now, those surveys, Heath, that you, the states that you're conducting the refuge surveys in, 
do their own midwinter survey that you talked about. Mm-hmm. They use different designs. For example, in Tennessee, I think the state probably uses a series of cruise surveys across their WMAs. Mm-hmm. They do not they do not survey, nor do they extrapolate to any of the areas that, that you would be surveying, right? That's correct. So in that state, you could take the numbers developed from the from TWRA surveys and from yours, add them together to kind of get a more complete picture of the number of birds wintering at a given time, right? In fact, that's exactly what that's exactly what we do. Yeah, we yeah. So every state is a little bit different. And so we work with the states. In some in some cases, they use our data. We add it. We add it together, and that becomes essentially an index that's consistent over time. Other states are doing a, an estimate. They're extrapolating over the in, entire um, uh, ent- entire area of the state, and we don't. They don't use our data because they fly over over our refuges. No, they don't produce an estimate for our refuges because their design is not appropriate to do it at that scale, which is why we have to come back and and, and fly it or fly yeah. it ahead of time, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to provide that bit of maybe sort of a statistical clarity, yeah. you <laughs> might say, that detail is that these numbers aren't necessarily completely additive to what would be estimated in a, in a given state. It's going to depend on the survey design that those states use. Yeah. So, uh, w- Takeaway observations from your time in the air and what you heard from other people? Gosh, um, uh, incredibly variable, right? You know, I, I hate to say it's complicated, but gosh, <laughs> it's it's complicated. Um, lots of ice in the northern portion. Oh, you know what? I should, I should back up and say when we flew because I'm just yeah. assuming that people know when the midwinter survey is. So the midwinter survey traditionally is that first full week of January. So this year, I think that began January 2nd or 3rd, something like that was that Monday, right? And so, and then and then went until about the 10th. Um, so that's when all of the states are flying. That's when, if a state needs our data, that's when we're gonna try to fly as well. The thought behind that is that you don't wanna double count birds. So you don't wanna, you know, birds can move, obviously. Yeah. You get cold weather events. So not everyone can fly on the same day or the same time of day, but within a week, there's probably you probably limit the amount of double counting because you limit the amount of chance that the birds would do these large scale movements and, and go from state to state, area to area. Um, we don't have quite that same restriction with our refuge surveys because we we have our own population objectives that we're trying to gauge our performance to meeting those population objectives and make sure we provide the the amount of food that those that, that those uh, ducks and geese require. Um, and so we survey certainly during that same time period, but we can go further into January and it's not a big deal for us. So that's our time period. We just want to be there when there are a lot of birds there sort of during that peakish time, but we don't have to hit the, we don't have to hit the peak. It's not necessary for our survey design, if that makes sense. And one question, you know, all of these states, I'm I'm looking at the midwinter survey information here and all of these states, you can... uh, anyone that's listening can go to these state agencies and find this data. Yes. In some that, cases. It's, 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 it's harder to find yeah, for some so, states yeah, than others. Right. At this time, at this this time, because I've been trying to do that. Here. Yeah. But right. is that the same with the refuge surveys? Do you guys have somewhere that you post that publicly that someone can look at it and just, just for in their information, really? Yes, but it takes... It takes longer because I'm an army of one yeah. going through the information, okay. and that's my excuse, and I'll stick to it, right? But yes, eventually, eventually. We, okay. yes, we have a, we have a waterfowl working group page. Mm-hmm. So if you Google uh, Fish and Wildlife Service waterfowl working group, you can get you can get that. right to okay. it. Yeah, use your use your whatever search engine and get there. Yeah, no, I, I just wanted to make sure that if that's possible, you know, people can look at it. But 
And the other resource that's out there that will become available eventually is something called Flyway Data Books. That's mm-hmm. it's something that's produced. Uh, well, it's a collaborative effort between the states and the Fish and Wildlife Service. It's available mm-hmm. on the Fish and Wildlife Service pages where it takes it. It has. People that are into waterfowl and waterfowl data will get drunk off of these books because there's every piece of waterfowl data that you're that you can imagine is going to be in some of these. They're usually produced for each flyway, and so what happens in those is they will take the information that Heath was just talking about that I was just kind of describing, where in some for where for some states you combine the state surveys with the federal surveys to get the quote state estimate, uh, but in others, it's just the state estimate. That's where people can access all of that information in a single place. Those don't yeah. come out until later in the year because mm-hmm. there'll be harvest estimates. There will be hunter estimates. There will be all these midwinter estimates. So that's another resource that's out there yep. for people. Okay. Yep. And, and and we try to be as as interactive on social media as we can be. Mm-hmm. And so many of our individual refuges have social media accounts. We have a regional, you know, waterfowl working group social media account. And so sometimes, you know, two hours after I flew over a place, I would, you know, if I had the time and in the aircraft, snap a, you know, snap a quick picture with my, uh, with my phone and, uh, you know, I'll say, Hey, lots of birds here, or, you know, saw something interesting in the marsh here. And then, you know, Hunter often, oftentimes hunters would ask questions. What did you see? And to the extent that, you know, I have the time and it's appropriate to answer, you know, I'm not yeah. going to answer anything about anybody's single duck blind well, or yeah. whatever. And, and I'm not looking at that either. I don't have the time to, yeah. it's, things are happening fast that, you know, more than a hundred miles an hour, you mm-hmm. know, flying over, but, but I'm interacting with people on social media and many of our stations are too. And so that's an excellent, excellent way to get that you get those survey numbers or to say yeah there was a big pile of mallards here or hey wow great numbers of green winged teal i didn't expect over here and i'll I'll throw that out during our surveys in early january yeah Yeah. do you guys want to go through like the state well uh, just take home i don't think we ever got to big take home yeah so we'll highlight some of the midwinters and then we'll start to wrap this up yeah 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 couple couple of pretty interesting things and so during early january i saw a lot of ice Mm -hmm. right um and one of the other big things is I never saw huge piles of birds, if you will, right? Which usually, and not that we're I'm advocating for that or not advocating for that, I usually just see that. It just happens that you'll go to somewhere like Bald Knob National Wildlife Refuge in Arkansas and see... 150,000, you know, ducks and geese so you, sitting you there. you can, like, text me that. If- <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, there's an embargo on <laughs> no, that. Yeah, that's no, right. No, that's no. right. There's a delay. It, it, you know, in 2020, we had that. We had 150,000 birds here. We had 160-something thousand birds, I recall, at, at White River. Mm-hmm. But the the water was up a little Water was up a little bit. This year at White River, I mean, I don't know, 10 to 20,000 birds. You know, completely yeah. different. But only 25% of the woods probably was flooded, especially that south that south area, which is the sanctuary unit you know, yeah. of White River. Not a ton of water in there. You know, Cache River had some birds in some areas like the Plunkett Farm, but, you know, Dixie, our big refuge tract, it didn't have that many birds on mm-hmm. it this year. And there was a lot of ice where the, where there was. And so we didn't have huge, you know, huge pockets of birds like I expect to see. We, you know, everyone or most people had a few. There were lots of 20,000 here, 10,000 here. Yeah. You know, Real Foot had 60,000. Big Lake 
Big Lake had a yeah. lot of bird. You know, heads up, everybody. You know, like <laughs> Big Lake had a lot. Yeah, <laughs> Big Lake had a lot of birds yeah. this year. That was that was pretty interesting, and it surprised me a little bit. A, a lot of birds, maybe fifty or sixty thousand this year. So that's a lot of birds for a little bitty, relatively really mm-hmm. small national wildlife refuge with you know where our management capabilities are are kind of limited. Um, you know, one of the units of Cameron Prairie down on the Gulf Coast lots of birds just absolutely loaded up but right across the right across the lake at sabine way fewer birds than than what i expected and probably some of that was marsh conditions you know you could tell where the where the surge had had pushed through and the salvinia was you know seemed like it was gone then you'd come to another area where boy there's just massive piles of salvinia everywhere probably hasn't had the i think that's how that works right you get the the surge and pushes out the salvinia is that right Mike? well the salvinia will die as a result of the the salt water, salt water elevated okay. elevated salinity there it can't tolerate that i i'm not sure if you were seeing I, yeah there will be rack lines mm-hmm. rack line that in, that includes salvinia it includes scoured vegetation yep. of whatever type is there and in some cases it can kill the underlying marsh and require some time take some time for that marsh to recover um but yeah there, it just pushes up whatever kind of vegetation is there fortunately it kills a lot of that invasive aquatic stuff because it can't really tolerate the salinity yeah. uh, so, so so to a point earlier super interesting the sort of anecdotal stuff you can see from those mm-hmm. hurricanes in 2020 and 2021 you know still a lot of debris out in the marsh oh, yeah. you know pickup trucks and shipping containers yeah. and, um uh, porta johns that was something interesting that i i didn't that I didn't expect out of the marsh, but for whatever reason, lots of those out The wind can out catch there. those pretty easily. Apparently, they fly <laughs> yeah. well and, and wash around well. So that's super interesting. The biggest, my biggest takeaways from doing those, you know, no big pile of birds, any single place, lots of smaller birds distributed across the landscape, which is probably, probably reasonable and probably good. You know, most people had, most, you know, hunters who find one of these sanctuaries and hunt around them, there are some birds nearby yeah. them, right? So it's it's acting like it's acting like like we want it to. Um, it, y- y'all haven't been doing these surveys like this for very long, right? Two years, and so this is this was year four of the design um, because of uh, COVID restrictions and the government shutdown and stuff. This is actually the second year, but we hope to have these that we have, hope to have these going, you know, for the you know in into the into the future. They're important for us uh, from you know, a policy standpoint and from a management standpoint uh, to see where we are and, and give us feedback on the management that we're doing on on you know national wildlife refuges i imagine it's it's also you're viewing it as a a valuable communication tool or or piece of of information because it speaks to as i'm hearing you talk about the number of birds that you're seeing at this location the number of birds that you're seeing at this location and all across the refuges in in the southeastern u.s and you can even back up and talk about it across the entire u.s and and canada when we do talk about the the type of protected areas they have we can throw the states and uh, states into this conversation as well. Each of these managed areas, whether they're sanctuary, whether they're intensive, intensively managed or not, they provide this entire network of valuable habitat across the landscape that helps to support these birds where they are. It helps to probably spread the birds out a little bit. And I know it's easy for people to get frustrated at seeing 10,000 uh, pintails or 10,000 ducks or geese of whatever kind behind a sanctuary sign but if that sanctuary weren't there i know because i can tell you that i i grew up in a place where we had a, there's a, a federal sanctuary corps of engineers sanctuary some years it's flooded some years it has some years it has water in it some years it doesn't when it doesn't there are not very many birds around and so if these sanctuaries across the landscape were were not there 
then you're going to see a reduction in the number of birds that that are going to be in that general area. So I would imagine that y'all are kind of thinking about it from that that perspective as well, being able to tell the story about the role that the refuge plays in supporting landscape level waterfowl populations. Absolutely, it gives us more information to com- to communicate about, and we can and we can speak intelligently when somebody asks us a question about, well, hey, are you know, ask us a legitimate question. Are you guys, you know, holding all of the birds? Well, no, you know, we had on refuges, you know, in 2020 in Arkansas, you know, uh, you know, several hundred thousand, but you know, the game and fish said there were a million there or more than a million and a half birds there. Yeah. Well, then, you know, 80% of them are somewhere else, <laughs> yeah. you know, right? They're they're on state areas, they're on private mm-hmm. areas. And so that gives us the data then to, you know, to to know that. And that, that's what we want. We want them spread across the landscape with lots of people enjoying those birds. It's exactly what we want. Anything else or have we covered the, anything notable from the Atlantic Flyway kind of as we we touch on that a little bit? That's, that's a good question. So um, I didn't do the surveys in North and South Carolina, but we did have surveys that, that happened in North and South Carolina with Brian Van Druten, one of our refuge staff, um, uh, doing those surveys. Um, I heard from him earlier, it's just some anecdotal observations. He said overall numbers were lower than what he expected in, uh, in North Carolina and South Carolina, especially at Madame Mesquite. Um, he did note that there were high numbers of black ducks at Pea Island National Wildlife Refuge. That's pretty mm-hmm. neat. Pea Island's a, a really neat little wildlife refuge. It gets this huge diversity of birds that if people haven't been there in North Carolina, it's a great place and you can see the birds that are that that are there. So lots of black ducks was sort of his report to uh, his report from there. Um, I did do the survey in uh, at St. Mark's in uh, in the Florida Panhandle. What a neat refuge! I've never flown that refuge before. It hasn't been flown in a few years from one of our with one of our surveys. Lots more birds there than I expected. Um, Was it like redheads and scop? And I, I feel like you you couldn't like every every bufflehead in the Atlantic Flyway <laughs> right must yeah. must have been there. I mean I don't know how many bufflehead's there are, but like they had to <laughs> all be there. I mean tens of thousands of wow. buffleheads. Pretty neat, but. Yes, redheads yeah. and and scop. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a flamingo hanging out in in the impoundments. I had to get on eBird to convince myself that that was <laughs> that, that I had seen that right because yeah, cool. you know that was like wow that that's that's you know not a spoonbill right yeah. exactly right so that that was pretty neat. Um, but yeah, lo- lots lots of birds there for for those folks in the in the Florida Panhandle. Um, um, in southeast Louisiana, you know, didn't have huge numbers. Delta Delta Marsh had some uh, National Wildlife yep. Refuge uh, had some birds, and then it was you know Southwest was was spotty. Like I said, Sabine not huge numbers there. Lacassine and Cameron Prairie had good numbers. There were lots of mallards. Had lots of mallards. Unexpected number of mallards at at Lacassine, which is you know which is good. Um, so I think that lines neat. up with a lot of the you know even the migration alerts and in. Just hearing from hunters, North Carolina hunters were pretty bummed out mm-hmm. this year. They, it was I got a lot of calls, a lot of discussions. Um, you know, they just didn't they, they really didn't have the weather, and then they didn't have the ducks, and it just people were frustrated there. And I I can understand that. It sounds like you know they just didn't have the overall numbers that, and I think they were dry, and and then they got water, and it, it just didn't work out for them. Um, but I, I've, I've seen I've seen some. Uh, some, I guess, information from South Carolina from a friend of ours, Molly, uh, Molly mm-hmm. Neese, saying that, you know, what she was experiencing and what she was telling people, she's like, is she the state waterfowl mm-hmm. biologist there for South Carolina? Uh, she was telling people that, you know, it just, 
it got cold, but it it got December was so warm for us. It took a long time. What yeah. I was talking about earlier, there's that lag between when it really got cold and when it started to put ice across all of those important areas up north that really need to freeze up in order for them to see you know big movements of birds. Um, the a lot of the birds in the Atlantic Flyway, of course, are going to come from the eastern boreal forest. Uh, they'll get some from the from the prairies, and and so there's they obviously took a little bit of a hit there with the drought and low productivity for anything coming out of the prairies. Um, but I would, yeah, it's tough sledding there in the yeah. Atlantic Flyway due mm-hmm. to some of the same environmental mm-hmm. conditions that we talked about, and you might have had some success late as yeah. a result of that extended cold weather. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was. It was an interesting year, ups and downs, and thankfully we had January to salvage the season. Man, I hate Agreed. to think what it would have been like. Hate to think for me, and I think for a lot of other people in certain parts of the southeast, I hate to think what it would have been like if we didn't have wood ducks. Wood ducks saved my season, had great production for wood ducks in the areas where I hunted. It stayed wet throughout the, throughout the summer. Good brood, brood rearing habitat there. And if we didn't get that extended cold weather in January, it, yeah. would, it would have been... It would have been an entirely different conversation right now. It wasn't a gangbuster year by any stretch of the imagination, but I think people's expectations were calibrated reasonably mm-hmm. uh, given the drought, low productivity, and then and then finally we got some cold weather to help move birds around. That is the thing that we would say with regard to the midwinter numbers. This is where we can transition there, I guess, mm-hmm. briefly. They do bear out. For some of those states that conduct surveys monthly, there are a few of them here at Southern Latitudes and Mid-Latitudes yeah. that conduct these surveys on a monthly basis. And you can see how their numbers change from December to January. And birds did move in response mm-hmm. to that cold weather. And they res- it, it they moved sometime between early December, mid-December, and when they conducted those surveys the first week of January. I would like to think, and it probably was, pretty soon after that, that real strong cold outbreak at the first of the year. Yeah. Kevin Cry talked about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Arkansas, Mississippi, Louisiana, their counts in Louisiana, or th- their counts in January were all significantly up from their December counts. They were still below average. Yep. That's the take home across all of these midwinter survey numbers. Uh, snapshot in time, all the important caveats there. No state of the ones that we've, we've amassed or that we've compiled here thus far stand out. Uh, most of them, though, you're looking at uh, below average counts. Yeah, that would be expected. That mm-hmm. would be consistent with a small fall flight. Um, the the fact that numbers change between December and January says birds moved, but still the numbers were down on average. There were a couple of notable uh, notable numbers here, Kansas. Uh, Tom's doing something right out there. <laughs> Their yeah. numbers were up at, at the midwinter. Now, we, we can't speak to what the numbers were like before or after yeah. that. Again, kind of put that caveat. But they had had good numbers of birds uh, there in Kansas. Uh, their total duck number was significantly up from the 10-year average. Their, their mallard count was almost double their 10-year average coming in at around 600, you know, 590,000 mallards yeah, across that's a, their survey area. That's interesting, you know, to see to, after talking with Kevin about, mm-hmm. you know, and he was very open about the fact that he thought that their midwinter survey was going to be like the lowest on record. Mm-hmm. Like he was like, we, we don't have any ducks. And then we got that cold front. They did the survey just after that. 
and it was, you know, 8% down, but really that's, that's not, you know, that indicative of, you know, that, I guess it's not, that's not a huge number to be down. I mean, they, they had tons of birds, um, but Kansas, you know, kind of to look at it and think, well, if, if, you know, Texas was up right then, Kansas was up, like where, where were all these birds, you know, two weeks prior and just, that's just my head thinking like, you know, they could have done Kansas, you know, maybe three days earlier and it would have been down 80%. They may have. Yeah. Yeah, You'd have to kind of really piece together those because of what we were talking Mm -hmm. about a snapshot in time. And these birds move. They, when birds get up and move, they get get up and move in a matter of hours and, and, and overnight. So yeah. And you know, there's a lot of other things that we could talk about here. We probably, uh, we're probably not going to be able to in detail, but dryness in Oklahoma, uh, it was really dry there and and mm-hmm. i was probably dry in kansas as well it was dry in texas we've had kevin cry talk yeah, about like that. the oaks and prairies regions of yeah. texas um they were i mean significantly down in numbers and if you look at a map you know that kansas area you know that's not a far hop you know especially because kansas got water there yeah. they were really dry and then they got water and it's like eh, that kind of makes sense and northeastern yeah. oklahoma had some water yeah. during uh during middle of the season mm-hmm. as well that the central and western part of the state didn't didn't have it's pretty interesting yeah when you zoom in if we look at north and south dakota in contrast to last year at the midwinter those two states still were holding a fair number of birds mm-hmm. kind of to, to do a contrast here i think last year was a record late date for one of their big lakes to freeze over that lake froze over much earlier this year, they didn't have very many mallards. As Rocco Murano, whenever he sent me the numbers, he said, see, we didn't have all the mallards this year. I promise you. Now, the mallard numbers were really low in North Dakota uh, and, and South Dakota. North, uh, what, what, what do I have here? South Dakota, their mallard number was down 85% from the 10-year average. North Dakota, down 72% from the 10-year average. Um, and so, yeah, it's... It begins to piece together kind of nicely at a big landscape scale. You know, there's nothing that's like total head scratcher yeah. on what we're seeing here. No, I, that, that's right. I mean, we joked about the Wabash re- region mm-hmm. earlier of Indiana and Illinois, but all in all, from all the data that, that we can look at and piece together, you know, there aren't huge piles of birds sitting at northern latitudes, you know, this year. Yeah. Yes, there's a few thousand here, you know, Grand Pass and Missouri's going to have some birds. Illinois right? had a lot, Illinois River Valley had a ton of birds, but it kind of shifted. It, it went it, back and forth. It, it was it interesting. It did, and, and the midwinter survey there was down, I don't recall mm-hmm. what it was, but 70 or 80% below yeah. average or something. I mean, there were very few birds left in the Illinois River yeah. Valley, but over over in the Wabash region now, there were some there when you get south and you and you get east. So, you know, from, from all I can tell, all my flying, all the ice I saw being in southern Illinois, you know, there weren't huge numbers of birds sitting somewhere else they're just spread out along what what we had this year was just spread out you know on the landscape you know there were a bunch at wheeler and there were yep. a bunch in west tennessee and there were a bunch over here just <clears> not <throat> the huge piles in any one area that that we've seen in the past i think yeah and i, and I think every, every all of these numbers it's, it's just funny how much it does kind of reflect even just the anecdotal information that that you can pick up from hunters i mean the texas guys that i know did really well early, did really well late, kind of had a lull in the middle, mm-hmm. which makes perfect sense, looking at how the data came together. Um, Arkansas overall, I mean, like I said, I've talked to people, and they're all like, it's better it's okay. than what I thought. Yeah. You know, they yeah. were people were going into it really bummed out. Yeah. And they, 
felt like they had a pr- most people you know felt like they had a pretty good yeah. obviously there's winners and losers all yeah. across the board there will be exceptions if you're one of the people listening to this that had an absolute miserable season where nothing that we're talking about aligns well that doesn't surprise me and yeah. i understand <laughs> yeah yeah there's right. lots of people out there that that is um, the case and will be the case every single year and you know what's interesting here and and just jumps off the page at me is that nebraska had one of the lowest mallard numbers in 20 years on their midwinter survey and i think you know in the past five or six years there's a lot of people have talked we've been so warm you know in my excuse they were in kansas yeah no well my my excuse <laughs> they moved out of nebraska and i said this on the, on the podcast before when people are like where are the ducks i'm like man it's 65 degrees in nebraska yeah. in january well yeah. it wasn't 65 That's degrees right. in nebraska mm-hmm. when they did this survey That's i guarantee right. it. yeah and so that is seriously one of those situations where if you want to say well why did nebraska not have any birds but kansas did you would really want to look at the actual dates of when they flew those yeah. surveys and that it's entirely feasible. I don't know this to be true by any stretch of the imagination, but it could entirely be that if they would have flown that survey a week prior in Nebraska, maybe they would have seen twice or four times the number of birds. Who knows? Yeah. We don't have that that information. And just some some other cool information that you've pulled together here. The light goose number in Kansas yeah. is it's awesome. It's the second year, second year in a row they've had a really high light goose number. Those uh, birds are, are moving around. Yeah, and Arkansas is down like yep. 20, 25 mm-hmm. percent, yep. and that's they. You know, that's an interesting story that's unfolding. You know, yeah. in terms of what those birds are doing and how they're responding to hunting pressure, and how they responded to the traditional hunting pressure on the on the Gulf Coast of of Texas, and these birds are amazing. Mm-hmm. Frustrating, they're amazing. Yeah, and I think you know one thing, and I'm just gonna kind of toot my own horn here and throw a little plug in for our March, April issue of the magazine, which will be coming out very soon. You know, I did a a feature on, you know, white front distribution, but really it's kind of a spec destination piece, but you know, our listeners will be able to look at that. And this kind of indicates some of this stuff, like one of the, the new hotspots for white fronts is Kansas, you know, central Kansas. And it, and I worked with Tom on that and, you know, really kind of explaining these birds are showing up here in in large numbers. And this survey absolutely validates that. So now you're going to get hate mail from all hate mail from all the hunters (laughs) in, uh, in Kansas. That's all right. (laughs) I get it anyway. (laughs) Yeah. I already get hate mail from Kansas. So, uh, well, this has been great. Um, you know, I think, you know, what we are doing with this podcast is really laying the groundwork, for a document that Mike is working on, the season and review document. Um, this will be a great place. It's kind of just to throw the promo out there for people to be prepared, get ready for that. You're going to see it. You're going to see it on ducks.org. Um, people will be sharing it around. You'll probably receive it via email. Um, so yeah, we'll post it online on social media, hopefully circulate that widely. And I don't know what kind of delivery date we're going to have on that. Like I said, one of the, one of the things that I have to wait on is the final midwinter survey numbers because of some of the different ways that the number, not, you're pointing, you're pointing at me, Mike. I was pointing at Heath. I'm not saying Heath is a cause for the holdup, but because of the way the numbers have to be summarized, um, in some of the, some of the States, it takes pretty much to the end of February before those numbers are available. And I always like to remind our audience of this. You know, we, we we just did this long podcast, and we talked about a lot. Yeah, it was fun. And there's a lot for people to kind of digest here. Um, but if anyone has any questions about anything that any of us said, you can always email dupodcast at ducks.org. We have that email address available, and I think we need to probably push that a little harder just to yeah. get people, you know, to really, if you do have a question, don't, don't stew on it. Don't be mad. Yep. Go ahead and send us an email, and we'll have – 
Mike, we, answer it. We, it can be, <laughs> or I'll bring Heath in to answer <laughs> it. But we, ha- we have the whole fact or fiction series that we're doing mm-hmm. now. We can do a dedicated episode to a certain topic, any of that type of stuff. The one thing we didn't get to, and I'm not going to take us there right now, but I'll just kind of tease some forthcoming episodes, is how the season, how the spring and summer season is, is shaping up. There's a number of things to talk about there. The one-sentence summary is that in, in the important breeding areas that were in drought last year, we got some relief. We're talking about the western U.S. or the prairies. We got some relief, but we're still in drought situations in, yeah. in much of that area. We need more precipitation in the form of snow and or rain over the next few months. We'll be connecting with a lot of people as we go forward to give updates on that. And then also we're very hopeful, fingers crossed, that we're going to have a waterfowl breeding population and habitat survey across yep. all of the important breeding areas to, to talk about. Things are looking good. That's about all we can say right now. The plans are, are moving forward to have that survey conducted. Let's just hope something doesn't fall loose. And, you know, basically, another, let's hope we don't have another COVID surge, if I'm going to be blunt. That's yeah. what would derail it again if we had another COVID surge. Cool. I think that's exciting. I think it's something for exciting for people to look forward but to. Right now, there's reason to be optimistic. Awesome. Awesome. That's great. Well, Heath, thank you for joining us today. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Mike, thank you yeah, for great adding here. your insight. I'd like to thank my co-host, Dr. Mike Razor, everyone's favorite DU waterfowl scientist, for joining us today. I'd like to thank Dr. Heath Hagee from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, for coming here today in studio and, and really digging into some of the numbers. I'd like to thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for putting the show together and getting it out to you. And I'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us on the podcast and supporting wetlands conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. 
The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation, take it outside.